This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. I'm out here a thousand miles from my home, walking a road other men have gone down. I'm seeing your world of people and things, your paupers and peasants and princes and kings. This is Pod Dylan, a show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me this week to talk about Song to Woody from 1962's Bob Dylan is returning Bobcat Aaron Callahan. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. And new guest of the show, Court Carney. Hi, Court. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited to have you both on the show. Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Same to you. So you two wrote this uh, pretty amazing, extensive book called The Politics and Power of Bob Dylan's Live Performances. And just the title of it is is a little daunting because of the scope of it. And, it rolls you know, right off the tongue, right? <laughs> yeah, it rolls right off the tongue. But I mean, yeah, we're obviously here to talk about Song to Woody. We're going to get into that as to why you picked that song. But we do need to talk about this book a little bit because I am fascinated. But I got to read a little bit of it, uh, thanks thanks to you, uh, before we uh, got a chance to do this episode. So why don't you explain like the why and how of this? Like, Why did you want to set out to do this? How did you set out to do this? I mean, what is it about Bob Dylan's set lists that felt like a, you know, obviously it is, it's a great subject for a book about Bob Dylan because the world needs more books about Bob Dylan. But I mean, why that? Like, what what was the whole genesis of this project? I think that uh, we realized that there needs to be more things written about this guy. I think that's what we started with. No, it was a combination of things. And Erin can talk a little bit about where she's coming from. I think on a general level, set lists have always been interesting. I just noticed that's a set list on the wall here, not from Bob Dylan. Um, I think it's a long thing that I've been interested in, the idea of set lists, uh, how we trace artists through them. And then uh, Erin and I, of course, have worked on various Bob Dylan projects separately. And then we had this kind of conversation several years ago now where we started talking about kind of how, um, you know, Dylan's set list might be telling a larger narrative. And I got to be careful here that we don't presume what we're saying is that he is telling this story or that there is some sort of runic, you know, mystic element here. But I do think as, as a historian, and from Aaron's perspective as a, as, a, as a literary scholar, I think we can really dig into these set lists as telling some sort of at least a shadow history as to how these songs sort of tell a, a, maybe a larger narrative. I think, too, you know, Dylan has spoken himself about how he puts songs together and like what he needs at a particular point. And so he's conscious of how he's picking the songs. But outside of that, um, you know, from a lit perspective, if we think about T.S. Eliot's tradition, the individual talent, where once the art is out there, it exists for us to find those connections and the, the sinews that we see, you know, where if we see one song leading to another, either lyrically or musically, like sonically, then there may be something there that we can call out of it and interpret even beyond what he 
thought, you know, and so for me, I've been like court, I've been interested in set lists for, I mean, I guess since my early Dylan days, Dylan was really the person who got me into set lists. And I did this paper, Court and I met at World of Dylan 2019, and he gave a fantastic paper on um, I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. And and it was it really resonated with me. So I wanted to meet him and we became fast friends. And then we decided to present at a conference later that fall. That's where I gave the book, the paper or shell of the paper that's in my paper that's in the book, chapter 11, uh, where I'd been at a Dylan concert and I just saw some really dark stuff that was going on in, in the set list. And not just knowing it as we do now because we have the internet um, and where we can check the, the list before they come out, before we go to the shows, but hearing it and hearing it live and I think that's the power of the live performance even if you know what the set list is going to be is being in that moment with Dylan in the room and hearing you know his phrasing or the way the band maybe you know plays something different and so it's just it really did speak to me the way that it felt so dark um in that moment and Court had you know the in you know he, he really saw something in it and I appreciate that where he said we should write a book on this and I said sure and so that's kind of how it came about, you know, more granularly. But I think broadly, people do, especially Dylan folks, have an interest in the set lists. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, I can't speak to other music fandoms. And maybe this goes on with other artists as well. But I certainly i am an old enough Bob fan to remember the early days of the Internet to where, you know, the, the, the set list, the night set list via Bill Pagel was this totemistic thing. You know, I knew he was playing somewhere. I, you know, maybe on the other side of the country, but I knew, oh, I could go online and check in, kind of. And I knew that, you know, a bunch of other knuckleheads like me were doing the same thing. And that was a amazingly communal experience to have in the early days of the dial up internet, where, you know, getting on the internet really took some effort and some patience. Cause, you know, you had to sit there and listen to the right. AOL thing screech as you, as you <laughs> got on or whatever. But nevertheless, it was like, oh, what did he play tonight? Oh, he did this. That's really interesting. And even though I wasn't there, I'm going to turn on that tonight because of what I think that means. And I feel like that's something very specific. Again, maybe there's other artists that have this level of devotion of, of the analyzing this set list. But I don't know. You know, I didn't know. To me, it was like this felt very specific to Dylan fandom that there was this level of focus on what set of songs did he play tonight? And what does that mean? Maybe it doesn't mean anything, but maybe it means something. And of course, we all love to analyze what everything means. So that that to me is always fascinating. Now, I should you know warn people that have not read the book. It is not just, it, it's a collection of essays about this. It is not like a list book where you're just kind of going through it because those lists exist on BobDylan.com, things like that. What was the, how did you come up with the approach of, of, writing these essays and including other people to write their essays about different aspects of this, the, the again, the central thesis of the book. Rob, I love your war warning. These are academic essays. This is not. <laughs> I feel like we come with that warning label on most of the things we do. Mm -hmm. Watch out. I know it sounds fun. There is not, no. Um, <laughs> you know what? I, I think to your, your earlier point, I think that, and one thing that we don't talk too much about in the book, 
I think it was something we've talked a little bit around the book is that idea of community. Cause I think that is where it's interesting, right? Like the set list is, a, is totally a spoiler, but it's a spoiler that you dive into because you're wanting to compare the experience. I told this story a few weeks ago, but I saw the national and uh, there were people all around me with setlist.fm on their phones watching the show, tra- trace, I'm assuming tracing, I should have talked to them, but tracing where they were in the set. Um, obviously, it goes back to the taping culture with the Grateful Dead. That was not setless specific, but I mean, it clearly is, you know, did they do this or when did they do this? But there is an interesting kind of concept I've thought a lot about of like, when do we start caring about that? I remember, you know, the Beatles for their last show for a long time, Paul McCartney had the set list taped to his Hofner base. And uh, like this totemic, what you were talking about, this like connection to that particular moment. And that's interesting. But to get to your other point, I think we uh, uh, we actually had a conversation of maybe co-writing a book. <clears throat> and I think very quickly uh, we thought, it'd be best to maybe not do that and maybe bring in other people and have a kind of group. And we had sort of in 2019, from from my perspective, the first time of kind of touching a a community of scholars that were really cool. And I think the idea sprang from that and like, well, why don't we get our friends interested in this? And then from there, we went the academic route with a call for papers and we have a combination of people that we've known and then people that we haven't known. And in fact, there are some people that I haven't met yet that that then came together with all their different takes and it's interdisciplinary. So there's there's a little bit of lit, there's a little bit of history, there's a little bit of all sorts of stuff kind of floating in there. We have a poet mm-hmm. uh, who wrote a, a series of sonnets. Um, <clears throat> so I think it was, it, it turned out to be, I, I think more interesting with the collection of essays and having different people with different takes. I think too, to your point, Court, that we got more than more interesting interpretations than had you and I just written it together because we have all these great minds of people that you're saying that we do know, and then the great folks that we got in calls for papers, and it really did. In I would like to say this in some ways replicate that sense of community that Dylan really creates for us, that we have people sharing their ideas about what it means to listen to, you know, to to engage with the set list. And in an academic way, because I mean Grayley Heron's chapter on the Warfield residency is, you know, really looks at it as a miracle um or morality, a set of miracle morality plays where he's reconciling with the audience. And it's just it is a work of genius that you know, it would be missing had we not had Grayley um, participate. Plus, you know, and I'm picking out Grayley's because it's fresh in my mind. I was just reading it. But all of the the essays really bring these interesting perspectives that would be missing if it was just Court and I writing. So I appreciate that. The the title, The Politics and Power, what what, what does that mean exactly? What, what's your, you know, what do you think that means when you came up with the title? Was that the original title? I think it was flipped, wasn't it? Play a song for me came first, but there, there's sense, you know, I don't think we're naive enough to think that Bob Dylan's making a political statement, but there are social cultural statements clearly that he's making. Um, but also, you know, depending on wh- what moment he's playing in, but then also the power of seeing him live. And I think we've all just experienced that in the fall that, you know, I know, 
Robbie went to the Philadelphia show. If that's mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. In court, yep. you went in. You went in New York. I went. I saw three shows at in Chicago, and I went to the Beacon as well. And so, being there, there is just a different experience. I think of being in that community. Um, Elizabeth Cantalamasa wrote on her blog, and it's something I've said. I always said, Bob, going to a Dylan concert is like being a big church. There's a power to being <laughs> in that secular, you know, sacred commute, that communal experience of being in the same room with him with other people who are sharing that experience. And I think that's part of the power of of seeing Dylan live. And I think that's what I meant. Like when, and then play a song for me, obviously, is from Tambourine Man and that's what he's doing up there essentially playing a song yeah to peel the curtain back we actually had probably it's a cumbersome title but it was probably slightly more cumbersome and then our press rutledge came back with some edits so yeah but the power uh the but also it's a play not a playoff but i know that uh an important book or a series of books for for Aaron and, and and obviously for a generation of people is going back to Paul Williams and how he wrote about the performances and I think that was a little bit kind of in the back of our mind and then we had uh, I don't know if you remember this we had select uh, um, selectivity or something like that was in the original title too <laughs> so, it was yeah there was selectivity in we are not thing. marketing people wow <laughs> what if we put all of these I'm surprised we didn't have intertextual or something like that in there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, kind of looking at it uh, from this 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 story, and there is some of the chapters really do play with this idea of power uh, and sort of a, a larger uh, notion of that. You know, the fun part about this stuff with with the call for papers is that you put together a kind of like, well, this is what we we're thinking would be great topics. And uh, most of those didn't get touched, but everyone has their own thing. And there's stuff I never would have thought about that gets in there. Um, people have their really interesting takes like Shakespearean takes. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole thing connecting him to the bicentennial. There's all sorts of stuff in there that, that, that would not have been something that Aaron and I would have written about. And I think that it, it's more successful because of that. And it also, it also meant that we have people covering there are scholars who are really interested in the early stuff. There's scholars who are really interested in the the eighties. Um, kind of the middle of the book is all kind of couched in that that early eighties period. Um, weirdly enough, we didn't get that many nineties essays, but we then had you know current work, people working on Shadow Kingdom and that kind of stuff. So that, that really helped. And you have people who have very really really deep interest in these other areas that bring the book. I think a little bit of. Um, a different flavor putting the word selectivity in your title i mean that's just naked commercial pandering court and you should be ashamed of yourself you know it really uh, is there's like <laughs> how many commas i think there was like five can we get a semicolon in there these are the that this is what we were thinking was going to really you know make it a success <laughs> uh so Aaron, Aaron you mentioned you know seeing Bob live recently we've all done that and that that actually led me to something else i wanted to ask you about is because I think I don't think I'm the only person. I, you know, in fact, I'm sure I'm, I'm not. That you know, when Bob would vary the set list, because obviously there are very few other artists of his uh, of his stature that have the depth of a songbook that he has to pull from. There's, there's, you could probably count on one hand the number of artists that are currently performing that have that many songs to pull. Paul McCartney, you know, would be one of them. The Stones, I guess, but not not too many others. 
And because he has that depth, and that's just his own work, let alone covers and all the other things he wants to do. Every night when he changes it, it we think it's, oh, it means something. What does it mean? Is he in a mood? Is he in this? Is he feeling this? Is he feeling that? You know, I mean, he, he says himself, I'm a man of many moods. But yet the last bunch of shows that he did in November, December were incredibly rigid set lists. I mean, almost a bunch of nights in a row, the exact same set list. And so he's flipping that whole notion on its head. Of, of saying, oh, no, 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 you know, what, what songs I pick is going to be an indication of how I'm feeling tonight. No, now we have to kind of glean something else because he's singing the same songs every night in the exact same order. Do you think do either one of you have any sort of feelings about that? Like, what does that if it means particularly? Any, I mean, we're again, we're always there's always a danger of reading too much into Bob's every little whim uh, because <laughs> some things are just things they're not they don't have deeper meaning but it, i i do find it interesting that he's done something again very unusual and that he's singing at least this last bunch of shows the same not the same show every night in at least in its structure i think that's really unique for him right now you know one of the ways that i look at this because you're right when he opened with born in chicago on friday night in chicago we lost our minds and yep. then on saturday night he opened with Born in Chicago and he, I was close enough that he looked at Tony and I'm going to answer your question, but he looked at Tony and <laughs> said two syllables and they launched into truck it. And, <laughs> and I know you've talked to Henry about that because Henry and I spent a lot of time together that weekend. And as you know, all the folks in Chicago, we, we kind of traveled in a group, but it, it, that was a, he called an audible. So I think sometimes he's just playing what he wants to play, but even if he's playing the same set list, it's not the same show. You say structurally. So I I appreciate that, but I, maybe he's trying to, there are two ways that I look at this. Maybe he's trying to get enough recordings of rough and rowdy ways because so many of the other songs have been recorded live, whether Mm. sanctioned or unsanctioned, or if I'm going to look at it in a different way, um, maybe he's, maybe the repetition you know, once we figure out what the connections of the songs are, and that would be the connection largely on rough and rowdy ways, but he also has the older songs in there when I pay my masterpiece. And um, Court, you did a lovely job in the the conclusion with looking at how when he switches um, every grain of sand to front of the devil. So you can speak to that. Hmm. But then the songs that he's doing every, you know, he's, he's got that set list every night when he makes those minor changes, you can see maybe what the changes mean. And so, you know, or try to glean some meeting if there is any. We had talked about this too, Court, and we thought that maybe the singing the the city-specific songs were replacing the, you know, the the Wikipedia dad jokes that he did in 2021, (laughs) you know, where he would kind of, I was in D.C. and he talked about Foggy Bottom, and I don't know if you were in Philly, and when he talked about Rocky. Rocky, right. Yeah, yeah, and so I think that... (laughs) I, I will take the songs, the city specific songs over the, the silly dad jokes, although I do love when he talks to us, too. But so I think that that's the repetition maybe reinforces whatever he's trying to do. But then those slight changes, we can kind of see like, all right, well, obviously he's doing the city songs. But that moment in Chicago on Saturday night when he launched into truck, it was just it was a vibe. He just looked at Tony and said two syllables and it, there was really no pause. <laughs> I think. I'm of I'm of several minds of this. I think 
if you compare like the current incarnation of the Rolling Stones and their tour, it's 90% set. I think there's a middle middle section when they kind of change some things up. With Paul McCartney, I don't think he's changing hardly anything up. Mm. Um, and I think that McCartney's a little bit different because he has such a stage show and all that kind of stuff. Dylan doesn't. And I think that there is something where you're thinking, well, this is the same show. Um, and I could see that thought, but I've seen enough of the current iteration of the tour to know that each show, I've seen at least three that would have had the same set list that were not the same show. Right. And you're dealing with very sort of, I know you're dealing with sort of a, the word that comes to mind with maybe elite element because you've gotten to see these different shows or privilege or whatever it is, but they aren't the same show. And every, every show I've been to with him, it's been another song that's really hit me. And I think that's really interesting. Not, not expectedly. I don't go in going, Hey, I really want to hear Rubicon tonight. It's not like that. But I remember the, the last time I saw uh, was the Portchester show and he did, um, uh, my own version of you, which he's been doing every show I've seen since it's come out. And that, that, that he's playing within the margins of these songs. He's playing so interestingly in that song alone. I mean, I like the song, but that night that was the song for me, you know, it was crazy. It was like, Oh, well, this is the song I'm going to live in tonight. And I think that's where the set lists are kind of a lie too, because if you look at it, you're like, well, this is the same set. And yes, he's building in those covers until, weirdly enough, the covers just stopped. And you're <laughs> thinking, I don't know if this is true, I think, but but he did Footlights at Portchester, the Merle Haggard song. I think that might have been the last one he did, or at least maybe one more. But then after that, there was nothing. And you're like, well, what's he going to do? Because then that becomes the game. Well, what's he going to play here that's going to represent this? Such, 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 such? Uh, and I don't, I don't think he's doing that to annoy. I don't think. Maybe, <laughs> but but I think it's interesting. I th- and I think also, and this is going to get me into some trouble, but I've thought a lot about this, is I saw Bruce Springsteen last year and there was sort of this performative element of Springsteen where he's giving you the set that changes a little bit, but generally there. But within the set, I don't think I would have missed something if I saw that same set the next night. I don't think, I don't, I don't, it seemed like there's a performative element. And I know I'm going to step on some toes here. But with Dylan, it's not that he's on or not on. I think this the songs are 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 they breathe. And the set list says one thing, but the performances say something else. And I think that's what's tricky. If he is recording all these, obviously he probably is. Uh I think it's gonna be fascinating. Not to mention, just go to the other point too, not to mention that we're not going to see Paul McCartney and hearing him do McCartney three all night. We're going <laughs> to see Dylan and he's playing all except for one. And I think there's an argument to be made that maybe. A murder most foul doesn't even really fit, count. Like maybe that's a separate song from that record. That that's mm-hmm. a whole other argument. But he's playing everything but that. That's eighty percent of the show. That's pretty stunning. And 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 no one no one at his age is doing anything like that. Sometimes I I, I recall. I've been I've been reading a couple of different books lately that talk about film history and. One chapter is talking about Marlon Brando, and I know that Bob really loved Marlon Brando, was a big admirer of him. And, you know, Brando's style of acting was to not learn the words ever. They would all be written out. His script would be written out on cards, and they would have to have the actors have cards on their chest, on their forehead, on lamps, on different things. 
And, you know, only someone of Brando's stature could get away with that. But Brando felt as though at least the official story was that was that it, it came alive in the moment because he was reading it for the first time. He wasn't he didn't have it down and he was just reciting it. And every take was going to be the same no matter how many takes they did. It was every take would be a little different. And I almost sometimes always think is is that is that like a lesson Bob took and he still carries it with him to this day of this idea of, yeah, the songs are maybe the same every night and in the same order. But as you as you're both talking about there, it, it is like a play where everything's going to be a little different. The show I saw in, in Philadelphia is on November 19th is only exists in that form and it cannot be repeated the next night in the next city, even if all the songs are the same, because he's different and the audience is different. And it's just going to be, and that's what he's giving us is that kind of the variety of it as even if the songs are exactly the same, but yeah, it's so funny. You think that when he got rid of the covers, you're like, Oh, is he annoyed now? Like, is he annoyed? And I think like, why well, that's only fans like us think like that, you know, the think about like, Oh, maybe he's, he's not going to sing a Philadelphia song. He's upset. No, he just, he's moved on to something else. I will say that my take on it is that he has been so engaged. There have been times in tours when you can maybe make the argument he hasn't been. But in this in this iteration, he's in it. And the band sort of huddles around him and there's cross-looking and communication constantly, and certainly with the band members, and he's looking around too. But when you're able to to see how checked in and, and tapped in he is, something something's happening that he, this is what he's wanting to do, clearly. And it's successful, I suppose. I would think it's successful. But it's clearly something he wants to present. I think too, like with a crowd, you bring a good point. Because if I had only seen the Sunday show in Chicago, I I would have been happy with it, but having gone from Friday to Saturday to Sunday, which was just the straight set list, no covers, and it didn't seem to have the same energy, the crowd didn't have the same energy, I felt a little let down at that show, and being let down at a Dylan show is still better than any any <laughs> other experience at any other concert, but especially after the Saturday night show where the crowd was so into it and he was interacting a little bit more with the crowd. He made a joke about Tony getting a, a big applause and we all went nuts, of course, when he <laughs> joked with us, but it's it just, I think he's feeding again, like a lot, like a play a live performance. He's feeding off the energy that we're giving him. And so there is something incredibly reciprocal there that, the show that we saw on Saturday was even though the set list except for trucking was the same as Friday, it was a, just a different energy with a different crowd. So yeah. I think that there's, there's something to that as well. I, I, I agree. I also, I like your idea, Aaron, of him wanting to just have more live performances of these songs out there to kind of like even it out a little. Like I, I love that idea because Bob's like, all right, there's 10,000 watchtowers. So right. let me get, let me get to a couple of hundred. He clearly loves this record. I don't. Yes. I think. I think it's safe to assume that he is very proud of this particular record, as he should be. But you know, he can be a little truculent when it comes to promoting some of his own records, and this one not so much. And so, I love that idea that he's like, you know what, the world needs a couple of hundred versions of the Rough and Ready Way song, so I'm going to do that, and they're and they're going to live on forever in bootlegs. And if he if he does stop touring, then maybe this is you know a bootleg series, the the soundboard recordings from these shows. That I, I would, I would buy that. <laughs> oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> so okay, well, again, that, that's it's it's a fascinating read, and I can't read to read to read the the rest of the book. But let's let's talk about um, song to Woody. 
uh, which is obviously for the longest time, uh, I always thought it was like considered his first song, the first song he ever wrote. That isn't strictly true. Now we know there are other songs he wrote before that, but this was the one that, you know, was famously like, oh, this is, it's on his first record when that record is almost entirely covers. You got this one. It's an original. Um, so why did you two want to, of all the songs we could be talking about, why did you pick this one? I think I picked it because, well, Court wrote on it and he says he is just a, a lovely, I, I sent you that chapter and he mm-hmm. just has a yep. lovely way of talking about maybe what it means to Dylan. And so I'll, I'll defer to Court here. Um, you know, I, I have a few things to say about it, but I think since it's his chapter and it really does set up the book in such a beautiful way to kind of position that, you know, here's a song that's incredibly personal to Dylan and it it helps us to kind of segue into the other the other chapters in the book but i'll let court talk about yeah i i think there's a a couple of things we can talk about one is there's this the essay itself was set up to be sort of as a introduction part two um i had gone back and forth of whether i was going to write for the book or not erin and i co-wrote framing of it the introduction to the conclusion um and she she was going to do an essay and then i was sort of on the fence i don't remember why this one of those things but then i decided well what if i did something about what i wanted to do in the first place and that what i thought the the essays would be about which is at different times of his career he plays this particular song going back to what Erin had said a, a few minutes ago i had done an essay uh, a paper on i dreamed i saw saint augustine which i would argue also is is is, is deeply connected to woody guthrie um, I think it's a eulogy of him. I think we go we talk about St. Augustine in a literal way, but I think it's also Woody. But at any rate, and one of the things I did in that essay was I looked at all the times he played that song and when he plays it and where it comes into the set list. And I had no place to put that information, but I kind of li- I like the idea that I was kind of playing with. Because if he did Watchtower, you'd get lost. You'd be in the weeds because he plays it so often. But with Augustine, he doesn't play that often. With Woody, he doesn't play that often. And so you can contain it. And you add to the YouTube and the released versions of it, and you have a pretty good sense of what he did with that song live. So then I thought with the essay, then this would be sort of a case study. of Like, when does he play it? When does he not? And and what I was getting at then was that this song seems so spectral. It seems so primal. And and I think that there is a story where he says it's his first song. We know that's not exactly true. There's also uh, some stuff that that people argue that even the story of when he wrote it is not exactly true, or at least the way he's been retelling it. But I don't think and this is where as a historian, I'm like, but I don't think that matters. <laughs> but but it does. But it doesn't because what I'm trying to get at is I think regardless, for me that song is is sort of the catalyst of all that's going to happen. I think it's his, it's, I think it's his originating song and I think it is his song of becoming. And so that's why I found it so interesting. And there's that beautiful, I think there's um, the Scorsese No Direction at Home documentary, I think is so profoundly important, but the, the, the interviews in there when he's talking about his home life and he's talking about such a visceral, there's a really beautiful visceral moment when he's like, you know, we didn't use we didn't have cold clothes like we have now. Like it was cold and we didn't have Gore-Tex or whatever. <laughs> and he's talking about these moments of his home life and it's fused with this idea of no direction home, which is one of those famous lyrics. But then you have I'm a thousand miles from home, right? So so where is all this playing into? And that was sort of the, the, the evocative image I was playing with. 
And so then it goes from that origin story to the fact that if you wrote a song like that, this is kind of what I was thinking. Why don't you play that every fucking chance you take? When you, if you had a guitar, wouldn't you bore people with this? But he does, right? He doesn't play that song very often. There is a really beautiful uh, autograph he gives someone of the first record where he writes out the entire lyrics of the song as an autograph. Wow. Like he's clearly proud of it. He's clearly this is a very meaningful song to him. But at the same time, it's not overdone. He doesn't play it that often. So that was kind of that was kind of. Uh, the starting he's only played it 53 times live and so and the last time was in may of 2002 so yeah it's not a song that he plays a lot it comes up and, and rob you were kind of talking about this too it comes up a lot in the late 90s mm-hmm. when it is sort of his set piece as like it comes at like the number two slot a lot of times he'll play like the old country cover or the old blues cover, then he'll play Song of the Woody. I think that's fascinating. He plays it a little bit in the 80s, and then one day he just puts it down. That's it. And maybe it'll show back up again. I think it's, I think personally, it's a song that just is really moving to this day. It's moving. You know, you just, you hear those words and it's really moving. But the other thing I'll say, this is the other thing I think from the origin point that we sometimes neglect, is how young he is. And when he meets, when he goes, to Woody when he's making that trip and he shows up at the doorstep and it's Nora who's very young and then Arlo shows up these are all very young people Nora's young she's she's probably a preteen uh or something around like that Arlo's like 15 or 16 years old but Bob's like 19 right these are very young young people uh in that story of him connecting to the Guthrie family is one that is so, you know, molecularly important to the story. But I think it's also a, a story of youth. It's a story of becoming. It's a story of like, who am I? And who am I through Woody? And going back to that Scorsese documentary, he has that beautiful moment when he's like, I'm not going back to Woody anymore. And it's really hard to trace. I think I think there, are, uh, there's a lot of fog around when he goes to see Woody, when he stops going to see Woody, there's a little bit of ambiguity there. We, I don't think we have anybody been able to place exactly when that stops, but he clearly stops. And he says, I don't, I, I, I didn't need that anymore. And not in a rude or, or brusque way, but like he had, he had done something else. Um, so with, with all that in mind, it's then when does that song show up in the early seventies and the eighties and the nineties? And is he thinking, now this isn't part of my essay, but is he thinking about those moments as he's performing these songs in new ways? That's the, that's the, the question you'll never answer. But I think there's something really fascinating about that. It's like, well, what does this mean? How do we track this? And that that's kind of a little bit of what I was trying to say. You mentioned in the, you know, the how many times he's played it, which is not a lot. Uh, and you mentioned it in, in one of the chapters it's mentioned. I He played it at the 30th anniversary concert in 92, which I was at. So, uh, and I remembered, you know, thinking, you know, a whole night, which is full of people celebrating him, singing his songs. The whole notion is how great is this guy? And then he comes out and sings his tribute to somebody else. I thought it was a wonderfully kind of humbling, you know, way to kind of bring it down a little like, okay, you know, let's, let let me go back and talk about my influence here. So I feel very fortunate that I got to hear it uh, played live, a song that's been played so sparingly. Now, I think, I think it's in your chapter court that you mentioned, you feel like the song is a hello and a goodbye. And I've always felt that way because it does feel like, I mean, 
he's introducing himself to people. This is his first record. Nobody knows who this kid is. And yet he's laying bare his influences. I mean, the second verse, he's expressly, hey, hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song. Just in case anyone doesn't know who he's talking about. Here it is. Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song. And at the same time, it is kind of saying, okay, these are my influences at this moment, but I'm already setting out on this journey to go past this. And there's, there's something, it's amazing that the song can contain both those things because in, in the wrong hands or in the wrong vocal performance, it could come off as a little egotistical that this punk kid is sort of putting himself in the same ballpark as Woody Guthrie, even though he's saying, he's saying, you know, Woody, you're obviously, and he's, you know, he's mentioning Cisco and Sonny and Lead Belly and all these other great figures. It is a little gutsy for a 19 year old to kind of be like, Hey, I'm in this circle a little, but it, it never, at least to me, never comes off like that. And that's, that's an amazing trick that he pulls off either with his vocal performance or the lyrics or both. Well, I think that's exactly. Yes. I think that's, I think those uh, different pieces make the song more than what it could have been. It could have been a name check song. It could have been a song that is obviously a folk tradition song of this is where, I, you know, he does that in, the, in, the, in other songs where this is where I learned it. This is where it came from. This is a, you know, whatever. And it, it has that, but then, you know, you can read it a million different ways. When you get to that last verse, when he's like, I'm leaving tomorrow, but I could leave today. Hmm. That's a really brilliant line. Like you go, oh, okay. That's, that, that, that says nothing, but it says everything. I, I mean, I'm leaving tomorrow, <laughs> but I could leave today. I'm putting myself in this hard traveling road. It's the ramble that I'm interested in. The other side note to this is that I have for long, a long time been fascinated by the Woody Guthrie tribute. So Woody dies in October of 67 and they put together the tribute for him in January of 68 at Carnegie Hall. And this is a big deal. Obviously Dylan hadn't been performing live. It was the first time. Uh, he had been around for for several years. There's a lot of anticipation. And then Dylan shows up and he has the band with him. Uh, they weren't known as the band, but he's with the band. The Crackers, they, right? They were the Crackers yeah, at that point? Yeah, yeah. I'll, let you, I'll, let you, I'll let you tell the joke. But, um, you know, he um, plays those three songs, uh, Dear Mrs. Roosevelt, Ain't Got No Home, and then uh, Grand Coulee Dam. And I forever thought that those three songs are forever music. That's music that I could listen to forever. The performances they have are just so, they're just so great. And that sound is so great and so unique and so interesting. And so I, I've written an article on that, but why those songs? Why? And, and there's all this conversation at the time of like, he's going to play his own songs. He's going to play Song of the Woody. He's going to play Blow in the Wind. And no, he comes and plays three songs at least one of which people didn't know that well. And Dear Mrs. Roosevelt's a that's a deep cut for the even <laughs> for the full. Uh, Grand Coulee Dam, fascinating, right? A war song about you know written in 1941 before America enters the war about war machinery, and he's playing that in '68. Fascinating choices. One thing that at one of the, one of the great moments in my life is that I was able to talk to uh, Garth Hudson. I was able to get an interview with him before I gave a paper about this comp, this this 68 show. And I had the really beautiful pleasure of, of talking to him on the phone for several hours. And 
at one point we finally talked about that show and I asked him just, do you remember any conversation about why those songs? And he said he, that Dylan and Robbie may have talked about it, but he goes, he didn't talk. We didn't talk to him about that. We just, these are the songs we played, but he makes this comment that is so wonderful. He says, you know, some songs just have more colors in them. That was, (laughs) that was Garth's comment. And like, there's something about those three songs that were his vision of Woody that he wanted to do his way. And he did. And so that's the backdrop for this, this essay. Cause I was like, well, that, that is his version of Woody. This is his origin story with songwriting. And I think it's Woody just to be flippant. It's Woody, but it's also the idea of Woody. And that's where the hello and the goodbye comes in because it's like, this person means a lot to me, but it's also like, I cannot be this person. And then on the same time, that song is sort of the fracture between the folk community and Bob where he's becoming known as the Woody jukebox which I'm sure annoyed him, you know, that, that's, that, 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 that's not sustainable. It's great in the short term, but it's not sustainable as someone who is so different directionally focused as he is. And so I think that that's all embedded in this. And then of course there is the, like, where is he coming from? Where it's not just Woody, it's the idea of home. It's the idea creating something different. I think that's why that song is still so powerful. I think his his poem that he reads about Woody Guthrie too has a lot of power to it. There's something there that is so uh, in the blood, I think, that, that defies easy historical contextualization where you're like, well, this is what Woody meant. Sure. But there's something else that's embedded in that. And he brings it out in 92, which I think is exactly the time you think he would bring it out. Like that's perfect. And then it goes away again. Then it comes back, you know, and I think that there is there is something that it's as much of a message song that he ever wrote, but it's not a message. It's the one of the more personal songs I think he's ever from that period that he wrote. I think it's a it's a message maybe to himself more than anybody else. And I think that's why it still has some meaning. And if you listen to those recordings that we have from the, from the last series of shows he does, I mean, they're just gorgeous renditions of it. Like he's, he's in the song with it. He's not, this isn't a greatest hit that he's, he's played a million times. It's a song that he connects to. And it kind of speaks, I don't maybe Court, you can speak to this more because he wrote on it so extensively, but it speaks to that. Like there is a sense of reverence to Guthrie in it, but it also speaks to the idea that he, the concept of destiny that he talks about all the time about he's you know obviously in the state of becoming but you're right rob when you say that it could sound like hubris if it was performed any other way but there's a tenderness to him taking up the mantle from from guthrie and carrying on that tradition in a new way and you know in a different direction and so i think that's another reason why the song works so well yeah, he's got a line in it that there's not many men that have done the things that you've done. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's talking about that at 19. If there's anybody that you could say has done even more, it's it's Bob Dylan. I mean, the guy, the the amount of firsts the guy's done is just staggering. And by the way, you know, you both talked about like uh, like a greatest hit, right? It's not a greatest hit. And talk about the set list. I love to analyze what appears on greatest hits collections because I always feel like that's that you know, and I could be completely wrong. But I always find it to be somewhat instructive. And this song is on the 2007 Dylan set, the big omnibus kind of greatest hits collection. 
And it's the, of course, the first song. And I find that interesting because obviously it was never a hit. It's not a, it's not a song most people know. And yet to me, that tells me, I bet Bob wanted it on there. That was not a song that I think a record executive, if they're putting it together, they're going to start with Blown in the Wind, not Song to Woody. But Song to Woody is on there. And maybe it was just, well, we want to have every album represented. But I don't know. To me, there's something I, I have this feeling, this hunch of like, when they're putting that together, they asked Bob for his personal list, and he had that song on there. Because it's, yeah, it's not a song he plays a lot, but it means a lot to him. And you, you mentioned, Aaron, about where it appears. I was looking at you know, the thread of where he was playing it. You see, you know, we've all noticed, especially, you know, when you're analyzing the set list, songs appear and they run for like eight, nine, 10, 20, 12 shows, and then they go away. Song to what he doesn't. It, it appears like twice two nights in one week and then not again for six months and then once and then not again for a year. So it is really sporadic. And it's obviously a song that the band knows that he can pull out at a moment's notice, but it's not something that is kind of on his mind. He's like, well, let me keep trying it. It's sort of almost like it just occurs to him every so often and bang, he does it. And then it's just gone again for another six months. You're, you're saying that. And I, I think it needs a deeper dive too, to see where in the set it appears in each of those shows because that might you know reveal something if he's opening with it or if it's you know an audible like he calls with trucking or some songs where he just you know like where like if that that would be interesting too to listen to the bootlegs of those shows to see does it seem like something that he just decided in the moment he was feeling it he wanted to sing it or is it something maybe he planned ahead of time but that's a really good point rob or when he's playing it solo or when he brings the band in. Right, right. Those are different things, too. You know, Rob, you make an interesting point about the greatest hits. I think the, what's interesting is that the greatest hits volume two has a shadow over this tour because that's where you get watching the river, right? He plays that. When I pay my masterpiece. Yeah. I my masterpiece. Yep. I think some of the, the country stuff is on there. Uh, that 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 I think that record that collection is is undervalued because there's a really it has a cohesion to it in some ways that I don't know but you know uh, on a on a more personal note I'm sort of uh, between projects right now and I'm kind of thinking about some different things and and I've been drawn to like this much more sort of personal sort of um, the word I'm thinking about is vulnerability, but that's more on my end. Um, maybe a sensitivity. I think Aaron said a word earlier, I would say. Of, of like, tenderness. Uh, a tenderness. I think, I, I think you know, there's something in, in that music that really speaks to me. And I think that, uh, you know, we can, there's a lot of good work on Woody Guthrie. There's a lot more work you could do. But I know like, you know, Daniel Wolf has a really brilliant book where he looks at, you know, the 1913 massacre and how that connects to songs of Woody and how we can look at all these different pieces. And and I think that there is some really great work out there. At the same time, I'm I'm, I'm thinking like, what draws me to this stuff? You know, there's, there's something there that I think is, is hard to document. And I think as a historian, uh, that's a little scary, <laughs> but I'm sort of like, maybe moving in a different direction with some stuff of thinking, well, why does this have meaning? You know, where does this meaning come from? And I think this idea of a mentor who by the time Bob knows him is very sick, 
You know, he knows him as a mentor through music more than as a person. He's very ill by the time Dylan shows up. Um, I think there's something meaningful there to that too, because it is a symbol. It's a symbol of things that maybe Bob wanted to be. It's a symbol of what Bob thought he could be. Maybe it was a symbol of things that Bob didn't think he could be, but wanted to be. That ramble, that that on the road, that that uh, person of the people. Um, and, and Woody was a lot of things, but he was also someone who was very engaged with individuals. He was very engaged in politics. He's very engaged in a struggle, but he also wasn't tied down to any of that. You know, it's like, what's next? And I think there is something there that, that Dylan gravitated toward. You mentioned the 1913 Massacre, which is the Woody Guthrie song that this, uh, you know, he, that Bob copped the melody from for this song. He does that. He's done that a million times. And my ears musically are so untuned that I have a hard time hearing that stuff when someone will say, oh, he lifted this song for this. And I, you know, I'll go back and I'll listen to the original song and I go, I, I can't hear that. in it. You can hear it on that one on 1913. I mean, it's very obvious. And it's it's that it's perfect that he's singing this tribute to Woody Guthrie and he's by copying the melody from one of, one of Woody Guthrie's songs. Um and then, well, he does that with I Dream. I saw uh, St. Augustine, too. He's mm-hmm. copying Joe Hill. Right, right. And so he's putting it directly into that same worldview, which is, again, why I think St. Augustine, which is I'm guessing is written not too long after Woody's death, I think is in the exact same thing. He's he's borrowing these these melodies and these these progressions purposefully to, to make this point. Many years ago, actually decades ago, um, I was at art school and I had a friend sitting in the row in front of me and he would listen to music while we were working on our assignments. He would listen to music on his uh, Walkman. That's how old this was. And he was a big David Bowie fan. And at one point he turns to me and he goes, and he, and he pulls the cassette out and he points at it and he says, look at this. And it was the album he had was hunky Dory. And the song is, is song for Bob Dylan which features the line, oh, here, this Robert Zimmerman, I wrote a song for you, which is so funny because David Bowie is not someone I associate with the folk process, but here it is. But this guy goes, here's the, he points to it. It's a song for Bob Dylan. And I look at it and I, and I didn't know that song existed to that point. And I said, how is it? And he goes, oh, I, I, I can't listen to it. It's a song for Bob Dylan. And then he turns around and that was the end of the interaction. And I sort of appreciated uh, a 19-year-old telling a dad-like joke and then committing to the bit and turning around. And I never talked to him about it again. <laughs> it but I think later? That, you know, to, to, to kind of talk, to, you know, to, to, I guess, riff off what Court's saying, I've been really focused on the idea infinity goes up on trial and how Dylan, you know, as I'm also in between projects, how Dylan has influenced the culture. And that to me was one of the most interesting things and how, you know, he takes 1913 Massacre and he takes lines from it and writes an homage to Woody Guthrie. And I'm not quite sure that Song for Bob Dylan in 1971 is an homage to Dylan, but it's interesting that that's now out there in the culture that Bob Dylan influenced that. And so it's kind of where I am. I was going to, I was going to bring that up. I'm glad that you did because it's an, it's, it's an, it's an interesting song and he you know talks about his voice sounding like you know sand and glue which is not particularly reverent um but then he also talks about him actually using his voice for something greater and so it's you know i think 
it's along the lines maybe of song to Woody, but not as reverent. And clearly he's not in the same position as Dylan was. But again, it shows how Dylan sort of shifts culture in, in interesting ways. Yeah, absolutely. Now the, the thing about the, him meeting Woody, right. When Woody was in the hospital, um, I feel like that's another one of those data points where we come up with stuff. So we're talking about Bob Dylan's life and aside from the talent, the, 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 the overwhelming talent, and him being in the right place at the right time. The guy has also lived a life that just other people don't get to live in terms of the opportunities he's had. Like, you know, I mentioned a couple episodes ago, he writes Brownsville girl talking about Gregory Peck. Cause he loves Gregory Peck and he grew up on Gregory Peck. And what happens flash forward 15 years. And here's Gregory Peck giving him a Kennedy center honor. Like, no one has a life like that where they are interacting with these legendary figures. And I think about, you know, no. And it's, it's a good thing nowadays because fame has just driven so many of us insane. But the idea that 19 year old Bob Dylan could go meet Woody Guthrie, that he could have access to him. And especially in a moment of Woody being very so vulnerable and being so ill. Uh, and yet, it's one of those stories that you hear and you go, well, I, I believe that it happened, but it seems like a, like a Paul Bunyan tall tale sometimes. Also, like, like driving up to Carl Sandburg's house and knocking on the door. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Just... <laughs> but, but you know, the uh, Morgan library put together a, a collection of Woody Guthrie stuff. Um, that was stuff that had been from the archives in Tulsa and so other places. But one of the things they had was a little card uh, that Dylan, Dylan's handwriting of the stops, the train stops he needed to get to the hospital. Wow. He goes to the house first, but then he has this. And so we have someone owns a scrap of business card that he wrote the direction. So it, it's it's real and it's surreal that we have these moments that exist because you would create them. You know, you would create this as a as a as a fiction. Yeah. Uh, but he's there. The other thing I would say is that you've got Bowie, but you've also got Cat Power, and she writes "Song to Bobby," which is a really moving song, and it's very personal to her, telling the story of her trying to get in touch with Dylan. And I think that that song is very much copped uh, in 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 feeling. And she goes one further by making it even more personal and more direct by saying, you know, uh, you know, the manager called and I'm trying to uh, reach you. But I was, uh, you know, she has a, uh, I was 400 miles behind, which is a little bit of a riff on that. I think I think that uh, there's something, you know, it's like the portrait of an artist as a young man. It's it's whatever you want to look at to bring our Joycean friends into this. But the idea of of the artistic creator and yes there might have been other things before that but this is the one that really works and i think this idea of what you were saying rob of come like him manifesting <laughs> we would say yeah manifesting yeah. this life he says manifesting destiny in chronicles yeah 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 and then he's all these interviews where he's like i was in gallup new mexico and all this other bullshit where he's yeah. kind of just spinning <laughs> yarns i don't know my crazy. parents i joined the circus you know, it was nonsense. Yeah. yeah yeah but he saw so at the same time that he's creating this complete myth he's also kind of not you know it's like you know he's he's sort of a it's a sleight of hand that he's doing that i mean whatever you want to say about him i think he was he knew what he was doing it's not quite like, you know, Lou Reed, who is so 
there's a there's a quote in the new Lou Reed biography where he's like, you know, I was making so much stuff up, I lost track of, you know, you could ask me any question. I lost track of my own history. I don't think that was really what Dylan was doing. I think Dylan was being much more playful. I don't think he was as angry, but he was angry at times. But I think he was kind of creating this whole thing that maybe a larger story of it doesn't matter, except that it's the only thing that matters. And that goes back to your comment about Song to Woody being a hello and a goodbye. I think it's all this kind of stuff. It's a fact. It's a fiction. And I think within that hello and goodbye, within that fact and fiction, you have something profound, something profoundly unique, and something that you have an, as an artist saying, this is the footsteps I want to follow. But they're not his footsteps. They're footsteps that I myself am trying to create. And that construction, I think, is really, really ingenious. And I think that's the thing that then leads us directly to blonde on blonde or whatever you have i think he i think he doesn't come fully formed i don't think that's fair but i think he's fully formed in the sense of the attitude that he has and it changes but i think he's he's i think he clearly knows what he wants and it's not being a folk singer it's being something much larger than that no denigration to the folk singers out there but you know what i mean like i don't yeah. think he wants to be that one uh, other connection to Woody that I wanted to mention just as we're wrapping up here, because I don't think it's really come up before, is that, you know, there's the Woody Guthrie biopic, Bound for Glory, from 1975. And as far as I've always read, that Bob was in serious contention to play the part. And uh, he didn't, for reasons I don't know, he didn't get it. And it ends up going to David Carradine, who did a great job. Have either one of you seen that film? It's been a while. Yeah. Um, I it's a, it's a terrific okay. movie. And and you know, the the thing that I've always contended when it's come up on the show is that I think Bob uh probably could have been a pretty good actor had he wanted to. He certainly had screen magnetism. Uh you every time even when he's in a a, a really bad movie like Hearts of Fire or something, you can't take your eyes off of him. He just has that magnetism. But I don't think that he ever got the opportunity to work with a director that had the time to mold his magnetism into a genuine performance. Um, we all know the stories about the chaos that reigned during Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And Bob being in that movie was not Sam Peckinpah's idea. Peckinpah went along with it, but it wasn't his idea. And I think Peckinpah just didn't have the time, amid, amid all the other troubles he had in that film, to to sit with Bob Dylan and like nurture him into an actor. And so Bob, I don't think ever really got that training to become maybe what he you know was interested in was being like a, a genuine actor. And I think had he, I mean, we'll never know, obviously this is one alternate universe, but I like to think had he done bound for glory and he'd worked with that film's director, Hal Ashby, who was a genius director the, that might have actually turned Bob into a real actor because I think Hal Ashby was a similar person, similar temperament, similar artistic integrity as Bob. And I could see Hal Ashby working with Bob to craft a real performance. And again, you know, who knows what butterfly effect that would have caused if Bob had done Bound for Glory, maybe we would, wouldn't have ended up with blood on the tracks. And that's not a fair, that's not a good trade, you know, but I always think, geez, what that would have been, you know, clearly Bob loved Woody Guthrie and I can't, Im it must've really been, would have been amazing for him to play that part uh, as this tribute to Woody Guthrie. But of course, again, he never got the chance, but I, I it's a, always to me a giant, what if of 
what if Bob had worked with an a, a director that really was able to hone what Bob had into a performance? But again, we'll never get we'll never get to see that. Well, I think you know, you on, Aaron. No, I was just going to say there's that interview right before he goes. I think it's in Rolling Stone in like December. It runs in January, but it's given in like right around Christmas time before he goes to to Japan for the Budokan show, you know, for well, Budokan for the tour. And he says that he's not an actor. He needs to get out on the road. But I wonder <laughs> if that was just him kind of licking his wounds from, from Ronaldo and Clara mm-hmm, because it mm-hmm. had just been such a, a failure. But maybe I think they're really onto something with that point that had someone really kind of harnessed that that talent that he has that, you know, he could have been more successful. It's, it's like his... It's like his visual art where he had a mentor and was able mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, do what he wanted to do there. But then what's his visual art? His visual art is a lot of movie references. Like he's clearly connected. To yeah. Him. Yeah. Uh, also the 80s lyrics too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, he's, he's, it's, he's obviously has an affinity for it. And even his role as alias is like you were saying, it's like, it's still hypnotic. Like you're drawn yeah. to him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but Yeah. Maybe it was a little too on the nose for me, Woody. That could be partly it. Maybe he didn't have the, you know, I think you're right. I think there is something that needed to be started. But then, like, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, Girl Marcus does that really nice piece on noir and how he kind of connects the image of noir to this. And I think I think there's a lot of filmmaking stuff you could do with Bob that's beyond the filmmaking he did. And I think that there's something interesting there. But I think you're right. I think that he needed someone that was like, because he's not a trained actor. I mean, no. but that doesn't mean you can't have the charisma or the elements that can make you a great actor. Um, yeah. He had, when you see him in a movie, even when it's something bad, <laughs> it you can't take your eyes off because he just has a very weird rhythm that is interesting to look at. And that mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who are great actors, but don't have any star magnetism. He's got yeah. the opposite of that. He's got the inverse of that. And it just makes me think, geez, what could have been done? I mean, I, you know, related, we, we got to wrap up here, but related to that, I'm currently working on an audio commentary for a movie that's the a Blu-ray that's coming out for a movie starring Johnny Cash. And it's Johnny Cash's first film. And Johnny Cash was given no direction by his director. None in that film and you could sort of see it because Johnny Cash looks a little at sea because he does he's not a trained actor and you need someone to be like okay I'm going to guide you through this performance and I think that's what some of the more successful singers who became actors like a Frank Sinatra had they worked with really talented directors who could guide what they had into a performance and so like I said it's a fascinating what if if Bob had actually starred as Woody Guthrie and Bound for Glory just would have been and it would have been our most outside of Ronaldo and Clara, which of course most people can't, you know, haven't seen, or any of you is hard to find, obviously. It would have been our most sustained filmic look at him because he would have been Woody Guthrie's in every scene in that movie, and Bob would have been in every scene of like a two and a half hour movie, which would have been really fascinating, you know, which is why No Direction Home to me is so endearing, is because it's just giant close ups of Bob talking for long mm-hmm. periods of time, which is just absolutely fascinating. So, well, thank you both for, for doing this. I, I said, I enjoyed uh, the chapters that you sent me of this book. It's, it's a humongous achievement and um, it was just so much fun to get to talk to you about it briefly and talk about song to Woody. So thank you both for doing this. Thanks for having us. And, you know, thanks for, for reading the chapters we sent and, you know, um, it was a great fun. Happy new year. Yeah. Yeah. This was great. Thank you.
All right. Well, so I have an exit question uh, for both of you, uh, and this is specific to to the both of you. And maybe this will be tough to ask answer. Maybe I should have told you beforehand, but I'd like to get kind of live answers. And I'll go. I'll start with Court. Uh, mm. I, I'll yeah. I'll give Aaron a chance to hear Court's answer. You know, but and you don't have to name your all time favorite. But Bob has covered a lot of Woody Guthrie songs in his history. Court, you talked about the concert that he did and stuff like that. Do you have a particular favorite Woody Guthrie cover by Bob of, of all the ones that he's done or at least the ones that you've heard? Oh, my, my immediate answer would be grand Cooley dam. I think it's endlessly fascinating. I kind of thought I'd kind of tip my hat in that direction earlier. I think that that song is such a, it's one of, it's, it's one of Woody's more interesting song. No, I don't mean that in a negative way, but like, like the the wordplay in there is really beautiful, and I think that it's a it's a the story of it is really fascinating to tap into when he's in the Pacific Northwest. But then uh, uh, Dylan's version of it, I think, is just really endlessly fascinating. And I will say this too: is that that's a song that I take into the history classroom because you you can get students to kind of talk about how lyrical changes, what that means, or if you're playing one song in 1941 and playing that same song in 1968, how context changes the meaning and all those kind of things. So I know that song a bit more than, than, than others, but that's, that's my answer. All right, Aaron. I, I would agree with Court. And I think also from that, that concert, uh, Ain't Got No Home just resonates with me. Uh, I just think it's, you know, it has a beautiful sound, not just, you know, Dylan's phrasing, but just the sound of the band. I just, I love that song. All right. Excellent. Uh, I will, I actually, I never answer my own exit question, but I don't know if it's ever going to come up again. I will mention mine. There was a, um, I think it's a Woody Guthrie cover record from 88 and it's called, I think it's called a vision shared and he sings pretty boy Floyd. And I love that. He's having such fun singing that song and he sings the one he gets to the line about it was in Oklahoma and he does the oh and he stretches it out he sounds like he's having the time of his life and plus I just think that's just a terrific song you, you, you never see a gambling man you never see a, a robber right you know steal family from their home you know I mean it's just it's a great I just love it it's so much fun to hear Bob just really um, sing the song and just have a great time singing it so I that that is my answer so well again thank you both for doing this um as we sign off Aaron why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet oh um they can find me on X in the fishbowl I'm also on blue sky the same thing in the fishbowl and insta on the, in the fishbowl so that's just sort of my tag in the fishbowl um, but that's where I am all right court uh, to the ph sorry <laughs> yeah fish like the band yes. yeah I'm Court Carney at uh, Instagram, Facebook. I'm on. I'm all on the new stuff. Threads, Blue Sky. I'm all on that. That's all there. I don't know what I'm doing there. I uh, remove myself. <laughs> None of us there. X. I remove myself from X. I don't know. Do I go back? I don't know. It's, these are the hard questions that keep me up at night. <laughs> yeah. But but I'm definitely on Instagram is my main one. I'm on Instagram a lot. So. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Of course, you can find this show over on Twitter and Blue Sky as just Pod Dylan. If you want to support the show and hear our full extended episodes every week, plus our bonus shows, please subscribe to Pod Dylan on Apple Podcasts or on FMPods.com. And I should let you know that uh, coming uh, this Wednesday, if you're listening to the show the day it comes out, Saturday, the following Wednesday, we will have another bonus show, our first bonus show of 2024. So if you want to check that out, make sure you are subscribed to Pod Dylan over on Apple Podcasts or on fmpods.com. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye.
My mother's name was Nora Bell Tanner, and then she changed it to Nora Bell Guthrie. Her mother is Mrs. Lee Tanner, one of the earliest log cabin school teachers in Ofusky County, Oklahoma. It was in the quicksands and muds of the rivers rising, the wind that blew and whipped from east to west in a split second, the lightning that splintered the barn loft, the snaky-tailed cyclone, prairie cloud bursts, months of fiery drought that crippled the leaves, and the timber fires and the fights of men against all of these that I was born.